For those of you who are here, and there aren't as many children as there were last time. We had babies galore last hour. Um, so I, I won't talk to the kids as much, but I do want to do something a little interactive um, this morning. And I just want to teach you a little phrase. The end of this phrase is, God's purpose for you is to live your life in the church. So say that phrase, live your life in the church. Live your life in the church, because we're going to say that a bunch. God's purpose for you is to live your life in the church. But what about things like who I'm supposed to marry? How many children am I supposed to have? What job am I supposed to have? What school should I attend? Is my career to be that important or not? Where should I live? How do I spend my spare time? How do I spend my money? How, how do I gain my money? How should I educate my children? These are all important questions, but they're lesser important questions than the overarching one purpose for the follower of Christ God's purpose for you is to live your life in the church. But my church has things I don't like or always agree with. They have elders. And I was raised in the Baptist church where the deacons and the one pastor ran the show. My church doesn't have all the programs I think my family deserves to have and enjoy. Uh, My leadership made a decision I don't like because it offends a preference issue that I have. My pastor doesn't preach barefooted or from a park bench. And that's what I would prefer. God's purpose for you is to live your life in the church. But I don't completely agree with the doctrinal statement of my church. I believe some different things. I've been a Christian for a long time. I don't need the accountability and the fellowship I used to. I have a lot of other interests. I have to balance those now with the church. And of course, my pastor would say God's purpose for you is to live your life in the church because that's his job. It's not my job. Well, what I hope to prove to you this morning as we're continuing in John 21 is that God's purpose for you is to live your life in the church. John chapter 21, we've been looking at love your church. I'm going to get us caught up as you find that text. We'll start in verse 20 here in a moment. Just a little side note, and I don't have a good place to say this, so I thought now is as good a time as any. Liberal Bible scholars for years have argued that John 21 should not be included in the Gospel of John. That it's so different from the rest of the Gospel that it it couldn't possibly be part of the original text of the Gospel. Also, interestingly, they ignore the fact that no copy of John's Gospel has ever been transcribed, published, or sold without John 21 in 1,900 years. So, yes, John 21 is very, very different than the rest of the Gospel, but that's by design. It fulfills a vital function. It prepares the reader of the New Testament for the upcoming, soon coming birth of the church of Jesus Christ. In my Bible, the birth of, Jesus, of the church is one page away. And so this chapter serves to begin to plow the ground of our hearts to understand what the church is to be about. John 21 has some really important features for us that reconciled Peter with Jesus and gave Peter his recommissioning to the gospel ministry. We saw that last time. We'll see this morning a fabulous example of how the Lord Jesus chooses to use different believers in different ways in, in the ways they function in their roles in the church. The prophecy of Peter's death as a martyr, which we looked at last time, becomes a paradigm, a model, an example of how we're to suffer for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of Christ. There's the clear commission to the shepherds of Christ's church that job number one is to feed the flock of God. And how are they to do that? With the word of God. 
And we even get a final instruction on how to use the Gospel of John. It comes right before John 21, but keeping in mind that the chapter and verse divisions are artificial, they're not inspired, it really ought to be connected to John 21. Look with me at John chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And here's the instruction manual for John 21, or for the whole gospel rather. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What a wonderful connection to the upcoming church. Who are the church? All of those who have confessed their sins and repented of allegiance to ourselves and been forgiven of the endless debt of sin owed to God. All who have trusted the substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. All who have been guaranteed eternal life by the resurrection of Christ. And so because of this, we've been utilizing John 21 to teach you to love your church. And so far, we have given a couple of reasons. Love your church first for the beloved sheep. Love your church second for the faithful shepherds. And today, I'd like to talk to you about loving your church for your life purpose. For your life purpose. And John 21 is serving to kind of set the table for us. In about two weeks, we'll begin in 1 Timothy, which is just in a a buffet of ecclesiology. And so we'll begin in 1 Timothy, and John 21 helps us with this. But you should love your local church because it represents what God has already ordained to be the purpose of your life. God's purpose for you is to live your life in the church. Now, I want to just lay aside one little argument, which I have received on occasion, and that is the argument that says, no, God's purpose for me is to love my family. My family comes first. Well, that's a false dichotomy, isn't it? It's a false choice saying that you must prioritize one over the other. Well, it's a false choice for the very simple reason that your family's purpose is to live your life in the church. One feeds off the other, and what better thing can you do for your family than to model that we live our lives in the church? What greater gift can you give? The parents who say to their children, will be moderately involved in the church. When those children grow up, they won't be involved at all. What greater gift can you give that the Lord's Day is set aside for worship, for fellowship, that we punctuate our lives around the gathering of God's people, that we love and cherish and serve alongside God's people. Your family serves to strengthen the church and your church serves to strengthen your family. It's a symbiotic relationship. It's not antagonistic at all. Well, we left our friends last time, Peter and Thomas and Nathaniel, James and John, two unnamed disciples, They had just taken a spontaneous night fishing excursion on the Sea of Galilee and being professional fishermen, they caught precisely nothing. And when they were unsuccessful, you remember that a man appeared on the shore right before dawn at daybreak and told them to cast their nets on the other side of the boat. And when they did so, they hauled in a catch so big that they couldn't even bring it into the boat. The Apostle John from the boat first identified the man on the shore as the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And for the second time in the Gospels, Peter jumped over the edge of the boat to get to Christ. Jesus had made breakfast. All eight men enjoyed a meal together. And afterward, Jesus and Peter then had to have a heart-to-heart talk. Jesus insisted that Peter reaffirm and declare his love for him three times in open repentance for the three denials 
which Peter had to his shame given. Peter not only received Christ's forgiveness, he also received a renewal of his mission for the upcoming church. And just to underscore the seriousness of what it means to follow Christ, Jesus had told Peter that Peter's life would be given for the gospel and not just given for the gospel, but given in crucifixion. That Peter, like Jesus, would be nailed to a cross and die the excruciating death that Jesus himself endured. And so after hearing this, Peter, with great somberness and spirituality and and maturity, looked back at his friend John and basically said, what about him? Can he be crucified also? Kind of disappointing, isn't it? Well, that's that's what we have here. This is what John records. I wonder if John recorded this with a little bit of a smile that he gets to record something that for all eternity will record these words of his friend Peter. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who also had leaned back against him during the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? That is, uh, John is identified here in verse 20. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Now, keep in mind, John heard this conversation How do we know this? Because he wrote it down. I I imagine John must have done sort of a double take. Did you just say you hope I'm crucified along with you? Did I hear that right? But now Jesus answers Peter. It's direct. It's sharp. It's pointed. It's eyeball to eyeball. He says in verse 22, Jesus said to him, If it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. What is Jesus doing here? He's using hyperbole. He's using exaggeration. He's saying if, Jesus, if, if John is still alive, from our perspective, 2,000 years from now, what is that to you? In other words, that's a nice way of saying, mind your own business, Peter. And Jesus uses the emphatic pronoun that adds weight to his command. In verse 19, he said, follow me. Here he says, you follow me. That's a way in Greek of getting a hold of somebody's ears and saying, you do what I tell you. And this is a lesson not soon forgotten. Jesus is saying, you worry about my plan for you, not my plan for everyone else. In fact, Jesus' statement to John is so shocking that it actually started a false rumor in the church. False rumors have never plagued the church that I know of. But the rumor was that John would not die. That rumor was circulating when John was an old man. So John takes this opportunity to correct that notion. In verse 23, So the saying spread abroad among the brothers that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die. But if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Notice the hermeneutics of John, by the way. Precision and accuracy and not reading into what Jesus said reading anything that's not there. Now, this text is pretty straightforward. There isn't a lot of explanation really required here. And so that really affords us the opportunity to use the text to help us understand that God's purpose for you is to live your life in the church. And so I want to give you three ways from this text to live your life in the church. We love the church because it is our purpose Three ways to live your life in the church. First, we'll call in humble sacrifice. In humble sacrifice. 
Now, if we include the conversation that Jesus has just had with Peter, look at how Jesus expected humility, how he expected Peter to be humble, and then we'll see the sacrifice also. But all over the place here, just in this chapter, Peter's being humbled by Jesus. Jesus challenged Peter's previous statement in John 13, 37, when Peter asserted that he would die for Christ. Not we would die for Christ, I'll die for you. In other words, I love you more than these guys. But here, you recall last time, Jesus humbles Peter by asking him what he thinks now after having denied him three times. In verse 15, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, do you lo- Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? In other words, are you going to keep the same arrogance? And he humbles him. Jesus humbles Peter by giving him his expectations as a minister of the gospel. He doesn't say, I'm so glad, Peter, that you've decided to enter the gospel ministry. He doesn't say any church would be lucky to have you, Peter. He doesn't say, Peter, you're so in tune with social issues, so very appealing to the world, you're going to make a great pastor. No, he says, feed my people, feed my people, feed my people. Jesus humbles Peter until verse 17 reminds us that Peter is grieved. And we saw last time that means he's hurt. He's filled with sorrow. He's distressed. Jesus humbles Peter by saying to him twice, not just follow me, but you follow me. And Jesus humbles Peter by telling him, mind your own business when it comes to the decisions I make for others. It's not your concern. But not only does he humble Peter, he demands sacrifice. He predicts Peter's future crucifixion in verse 18. He predicts that Peter will be taken against his will to die the most gruesome death known in the ancient world. And he doesn't say to Peter, Peter, I'm really hoping you'll give a portion of your life to the church. Peter, I'm really hoping that you'll make church an important compartment of your life. He doesn't say, Peter, I admire you so much for sacrificing for me. No, this is what he expected. And you know this here too, that Jesus doesn't really offer any comfort. He doesn't say, Peter, I'm going to be with you all the way. I'll be right there beside you. That is true, but in this context, he doesn't offer that. He just says, you're going to die for me. That is my expectation. And so for Peter, the Apostle Paul's statement of Galatians 2.20 will be literally true. I have been crucified with Christ. And as of this moment, Peter was a dead man. And he was expected to fulfill his mission to feed the people of God. And on top of that, he was expected to watch as Jesus had different plans for other people. He was expected to watch as Jesus dealt differently with others, such as John, and to be okay with that. Now, what I really want you to know this is that in Jesus' interactions with Peter, he never ever presents to Peter serving the church as somehow being a component of Peter's life, being a part of Peter's life. This is example that we get from Peter is so key for us here. He was to be living a life of humble sacrifice centered on the life of the church. And he's presented to us as an archetype, as a standard, as an example, as a model of how we're to be as well. The New Testament never one time And this week, I literally turned to every page of the New Testament just to see if I could find it to find one time that your life in the local church is ever presented as merely a component, a piece, a percentage of your life. And it never does. 
Never do you see that you have your career, your family, your recreation, your friends, your hobbies, and then your church gets thrown in there too. You don't see that. You see your relationship in the local church intertwined and interwoven with all of your life. It's not a piece of the puzzle. It is the center of the wheel. It is the hub. It's the central defining part of who you are. Now, just in case you don't believe me, I wanted to take a moment and consider the churches of the New Testament. And you judge whether their members considered the church as merely a component of their lives. We could think of the church of Jerusalem. The church of Jerusalem was made up of 100% saved Jews, many of whom would immediately face difficulties as their families rejected them. Many of them also happened to have traveled from other lands to stay in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, and now they're staying in Jerusalem long term because there's only one church on planet Earth. It's really easy to decide which church to go to when there's only one. Was the church merely a component of their lives? Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves. It's a word that means to persist obstinately. It means to be deeply attached. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And in case that's not enough to convince you, two verses later, says all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. How about the church at Antioch in Syria in Acts chapter 13? The church was so concerned with the work of the gospel, not just in their own church, not just in their own city, but around the world, that the elders fasted and prayed about how they might impact the entire world for the gospel. And the result of their fasting and prayer was they sent out two men named Paul and Barnabas. Good choice, Antioch. How about the church at Antioch of Pisidia? Different city, different province. Acts chapter 13. The brand new Gentile believers were so excited. Verse 48, chapter 13 says, to be appointed to eternal life that immediately they began to spread the gospel to the whole province of Pisidia. Immediately they began enduring persecution for their new faith. Very similarly, the church at Iconium in Acts chapter 14, they instantly endured the hatred and the scorn and the schemes of unbelievers all around them. They lost their first leaders, Paul and Barnabas, almost right off the bat. And yet the church in Iconium stayed strong. They stayed together. How about the church at Lystra, Acts 14? Again, they had immediate opposition arising against their leadership and against them as a new fledgling church. And yet they remained faithful. They remained consistent. How about the church at Philippi? Acts chapter 16, the whole book of Philippians. I don't know about you, but if I was going to plant a church, starting with a a few women converts, a young woman who had recently been demon-possessed and one converted jailer, that's not a very good little group to start a whole church with. And yet they did, and Paul is there now with Silas. Both of them were beaten, imprisoned, and run out of town. And yet that little ragtag church in Philippi would grow and grow and grow. And their reputation would be that of a church that labors for the sake of the gospel. And by the way, would go down in history as an incredibly generous church in their financial support of the work of the ministry. How about the church of Thessalonica? Acts chapter 17 the few converts there immediately are dragged into a city, citywide riot. Sounds familiar to us today. And physical attacks on their homes. This little bitty church. 
And after only having shepherding from Paul and Silas for a couple of months, Paul and Silas are forced out of town. What's going to happen to them? Paul's worried. He's concerned that they'll just disintegrate. But later, Paul gets a report from Timothy, whom he had sent back in 1 Thessalonians 3, beginning in verse 6. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith. And he goes on to say how great it is that they're standing fast in the Lord. And think about this. They had Bible teaching with them for maybe three months. I've preached introductions to series that take longer than three months. And that was all the teaching that they had. And yet they stood firm. One of my favorites, the church at Berea, Acts chapter 17. Church at Berea was made up of highly educated Jews who heard the gospel of Christ for the first time and they rightly searched the scriptures for themselves and they believed and immediately this young church was plagued with persecution and yet they stood together for the gospel. The church at Berea is one of my favorite because their reputation for their love for the word of God is such that even today, many Bible churches are called Berean Bible Church. How about the church at Athens? Acts chapter 17, the center of godless philosophy and worldly so-called wisdom. The new little fledgling church there, were, they were immediately mocked. They were reviled. They were ridiculed by all the so-called wise men around them because the church believed something that others thought was ridiculous, and that is resurrection to eternity. How about the church at Corinth? Acts chapter 18. Now, if you know your Bible, the church at Corinth kind of goes down in history as sort of the bad boy church of, of all of them. But let's balance that out. They were definitely the most challenging church in the New Testament, but they were all brand new believers in a city nicknamed Little Rome, And so they did have their challenges. The believers there had factions and difficulties, even just wildly heinous sins that the Apostle Paul was trying to root out. And yet, in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul gives thanks for them. He is thankful for this church. He appeals to them to end their factions, end their divisions. He wants them to work through these things, and he gives them the tools and the guidance to do so. And and Corinth goes down in history as giving a gigantic, a substantial, a sacrificial financial gift to the struggling church of Jerusalem. In fact, Paul boasts in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 2, that the zeal and the generosity of the church at Corinth inspired many other churches to be generous as well. How about the church at Ephesus? Acts 18 and 19, the new church would soon endure a citywide riot. They would have to deal with their theological ignorance concerning the Holy Spirit. Paul would help correct that. And by the way, this is a church essentially made up of those pagans who renounced witchcraft, demonic influences, and black magic. And yet they stood firm. And how about the church at Troas, Acts 20? Another one of my favorites. They're so hungry for the word of God that the Apostle Paul preached until midnight one night when poor young Eutychus fell asleep and plunged to his death out a third floor window. Someday for my birthday, I'm going to preach for 12 hours straight and the four of you who come are going to be so blessed by that time. What did Paul do? He went downstairs, he raised young Eutychus from the dead, he had a quick snack, went back upstairs and preached for six more hours. Preached until dawn. Now, 
when you look at the churches in the book of Acts and you see deep attachment to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, making sure no one in the church has physical needs, fasting and praying for the gospel impact of the church, immediate evangelism and immediate persecution, citywide riots against the gospel, sacrificial generosity and giving to the gospel, giving to the ministers of the gospel, searching the scriptures for themselves, a hunger for preaching that literally went all night long. Does that sound like a group of suburban American families trying to choose the right church to meet my needs, to fit into my busy life of soccer, career, school, family, vacations, and social life? bears no resemblance to that whatsoever does it these churches were the lifeblood of the members and the members of the lifeblood of the church these were churches with a glorious eternal perspective looking for longing for the return of their savior jesus christ remember in these churches you could still talk to men who had known jesus and so in their minds jesus is returning any moment that might not be bad for us with it They had church members who exemplified living their lives in the church. And how did they do it? They did it in humble sacrifice. They gave up everything. The second way that you live your life in the church, we'll call this in obedient submission. In obedient submission. Peter's plan, Jesus' plan rather for Peter was one thing and Jesus' plan for John was another thing. They were unique They were varied. They definitely had some overlap, but as you trace their lives, they went in completely different directions. Peter, originally called Simon, son of John in Greek, or Simon, son of Jonah in Hebrew, you recall he was renamed by Jesus Cephas, or Peter, or the rock. He was very clearly the central figure in the Gospels, one of the central figures, rather. He's first in every list of Jesus' 12 disciples. He's prominent among the disciples, In fact, Mark 16, 7 records an angel telling women after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before them to Galilee. After the resurrection, 1 Corinthians 15, 5, the apostle Paul indicates that Jesus met with Peter alone before he ever saw the other disciples. Clearly prominent. Peter was the first one to preach a Christian sermon on the day of Pentecost after the coming of the Holy Spirit and goes down in history as the first one to proclaim the gospel to a Gentile. Definitely the boldest apostle of all of them. And yet he suffered persecution and imprisonment and beatings and even rejoiced in the book of Acts that he was counted worthy to suffer shame for the Lord's sake. As a matter of fact, if you did a little survey of the book of Acts, you would find in the first 12 chapters that Peter is the prominent character. Acts chapter 1, Peter leads the disciples as they pray together and seek a replacement for Judas. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches the first Christian sermon resulting in 3,000 new believers. I mean, talk about a a great start. Acts chapter 3, Three, Peter heals a lame man and preaches to crowds as a result. Chapter 4, Peter and John are arrested Together, and Peter preaches Christ to the same Jerusalem council that had crucified Christ. Acts chapter 5. Peter calls out the lies of Ananias and Sapphira such that they die on the spot. That's church discipline. And people are being healed merely by Peter's shadow passing over them as a testimony to the power of the gospel message. 
Acts chapter 8, Peter travels to Samaria to verify that the once hated Samaritans have now received the gospel of Christ. Acts chapter 9, Peter heals a paralyzed man and raises a beloved believer from the death, from death. Acts chapter 10, Peter preaches the gospel to a family of Gentiles and witnesses the Holy Spirit coming upon them, verifying that the salvation given in Christ is for all who would believe. Where has Peter been in three major points in history? He's been there when the Jews received the Holy Spirit. He was there when the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit. He was there when Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, verifying that the gospel is for all. And finally, in chapter 12, Peter is arrested for his gospel preaching, but he's miraculously released. And except for one brief appearance in Acts 15, Acts 12, 17 ends the ministry of Peter saying he departed for another place. Well, what happened then? Well, during those early years, Peter was very clearly the leader of the church in Jerusalem. But as his ministry expanded, James, the half-brother of Jesus, took over leadership of the church at Jerusalem. And now Peter went out other places. Not only did Peter minister outside of Jerusalem in Samaria, he went to Lydda, he went to Joppa, he went to Caesarea. Peter went on missionary journeys far into the Gentile world. And we know this because he was famous in the church of Corinth. How do we know he was famous in the church of Corinth? Because the Apostle Paul had rebuked the young church for having factions that were Peterites. They were those who followed Peter. He said, don't do that. Follow Christ. Peter also ministered in the provinces of northern Asia Minor and Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. Peter was married. And according to some very strong church tradition, after the resurrection and the ascension of Christ, he and his wife had a daughter, and they named her Petronilla, which is the feminine form of Peter. Strong church tradition says that not only did he take his wife with him on these missionary journeys, he took his daughter with him. 1 Corinthians 9, 5 tells us that his wife went with him. If his daughter went also, what does that tell us about this family? It tells us that they lived their life where? In the church. And they lived their lives together for the sake of the church the strongest evidence for Peter's later ministry is that he settled in Rome as the leader of the church there. Dionysius, an early church leader in the city of Corinth, wrote in AD 170 that Peter and Paul used to preach together in Rome. Can you imagine a conference with Peter and Paul one after the other? For much of his ministry, Peter was accompanied by a young man named John Mark who heard Peter preach thousands of times. John Mark wrote down what he heard from Peter and gave us the inspired text of the Gospel of Mark, really more accurately, the Gospel according to Peter. Peter gave us some of our best New Testament understanding in his two epistles that the Christians of today and of all ages live as exiles in a world in which we don't belong. He gave us some of our best New Testament understanding of what it means to submit to authority even when you're under persecution, even under duress. And he gave us our greatest understanding of what it means to live in holiness even in times that are so very difficult when you have authorities that are unfair. Tertullian, Clement of Rome, and Eusebius all record that Peter was crucified. Eusebius adds the detail that Peter requested to be crucified upside down as one unworthy to die like his Lord. But first he had to watch his dear wife of four decades be crucified before him. And so Jesus 
prediction for the end of Peter's life came true. He had lived the life Jesus had for him. He had run the race that Christ had prepared. But let's ask Peter's question. What about John? What about that guy? John also was part of Jesus' inner circle of Peter, James, and John. John also received a nickname from Jesus. Jesus gave John a nickname along with his brother James, the Sons of Thunder, because they demonstrated a a fiery temperament, such as that little time that they wanted to have fire called down from heaven on villages that didn't believe the gospel. But their nicknames of Sons of Thunder would change over time. They would remain fiery and mighty, but now for the gospel of Christ, for the ministry of Christ, which in John's case would last an unbelievable seven decades of ministry. John was very aware of the grace of Christ in his life. He became very humble. He never names himself in his own gospel here, but instead he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's not a boast. That's not saying I'm closer to him than you. That's saying he has loved me. Jesus loves me. And so his own nickname was, I'm the one that Jesus loves. John's contribution to the New Testament is significant. We have the Gospel of John, of course, written for the benefit of unbelieving Jews after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Now that organized Judaism essentially has disintegrated, has ceased to exist, John gives the once arrogant Jews a second chance to consider Christ. We have 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, these wonderful letters where we get signs and security of our salvation, warnings against false teachers, the condemnation of self-centered, pugnacious, fighting church leaders, and commendation for those who love truth and love to obey Christ as a result of the truth. And then, of course, we get the revelation of Jesus Christ where all the loose ends of the Bible are tied up directly from the mouth of Christ himself to the pen of John, Israel is restored, judgment is rendered, and our heavenly hope is described in greater detail than in all the Bible. The best tradition handed down from Eusebius, Irenaeus, Justin, Clement of Alexandria, Apollonius, Polycrates, is that John ended up in Ephesus. And he ministered there as his home base. As a matter of fact, the very strong tradition that Mary, the mother of Jesus, the widowed mother of Jesus, lived and died where? In Ephesus goes hand in hand with the fact that Jesus assigned John to take care of whom? Of his mother. And so, of course, they were there together. In fact, Eusebius and Irenaeus tell a number of stories about John in Ephesus, like the time he raised a man from the dead, like the time he confronted a murderer and instead of being murdered, converted him to Christ, or like the time he publicly opposed the heretic Serinthus. The early Christian writer Tertullian wrote that the emperor Domitian, who was the emperor at the last last few years of the first century, condemned John to death, brought him to the Colosseum and in front of a crowd of tens of thousands, plunged him into boiling oil to kill him, very anticlimactic in the fact that John didn't die and wasn't even hurt. And so they brought him out. And according to Tertullian, most of the Colosseum came to faith in Christ. Well, he can't kill him, so we may as well throw him on an island. And so Domitian banished him to the island of Patmos 
which is a very good thing for us because Revelation 1.9 tells us that on the island of Patmos, he received what we now know as the revelation of Jesus Christ, the last book of our Bible. But perhaps the best known story of John is the tradition given by Jerome that in his feeble old age, John had finally to be carried many times into the church worship gatherings and he would tell those as he passed, little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. Little children, love one another. And he would go down in history as the only one of the 12 apostles to die a natural death. His friends from so many decades ago in ministry with Christ were long gone to heaven. Every one of them murdered and martyred for the sake of the gospel. Peter had been dead, just for perspective, for 20 years by the time he wrote the gospel of John. He'd been dead for 30 years by the time he wrote the book of Revelation. And so while Peter and John started on the same path, they went very different directions. Peter is called to an important pastoral ministry and receives the crown of a martyr. And John is called to bear long-range witness to the truth of Christ and to the gospel and to quite literally finish our Bibles. God's plan for them was very different. I'm going to tell you one thing it did not include. God's plan for Peter and John did not include reticence or aloofness or detachment or distance. They lived in obedient submission. They lived their lives in the church. They lived their lives for the church. They lived their lives because of the church. They had a tremendous love for the bride of Christ because they had a tremendous love for Christ. And the point is, is that if Peter can submit to crucifixion, if John can submit to being left all alone, the last of all the apostles, then you and I can submit to living our lives in the church, loving her, protecting her, cherishing her, honoring her, serving her, as these great men of God did. And so you live your life in the church in humble sacrifice, in obedient submission, in one more way we'll say in close relationship in close relationship, if you say, I love the church of Jesus Christ, I just don't love the people in the church, then I say to you, then you're not a Christian. It's not possible. You're fooling yourself and you will get your way. Eventually, you will be separated for all eternity from all those in the church because you weren't part of them. If you went up to the Apostle John and you said, I don't love the people in the church, I don't love those who make up the church of Jesus Christ. I think he would take a Bible, find 1 John, and then hit you over the head with it. And he would remind you, I said over and over in here, if you love Christ, you love his people. And if you love his people, you love Christ. If you don't love his people, you don't love Christ. And he would say, well, figure it out if you don't love them. Well, I think I'll go to a different church because they're nicer over here. No, figure it out. And think about Peter and John. These paragons of ministry, they didn't always start off that way. They had a relationship like brothers, and that's a double-edged sword for all of you with siblings. You know that. They loved one another, and yet they struggled with jealousy and vying for attention. John chapter 13, Peter didn't say, Jesus, who is your betrayer? When Jesus said that he was going to be betrayed. Instead, he whispers to John, 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 ask him who the betrayer is. Because he was too chicken to do it himself. John chapter 18. 
Peter is following Jesus to hear what's happening in the courtyard of Annas. And John has to let him in because John is known to the high priest there and Peter isn't. And so John helps him out and yet John kind of has to cover for him a little bit. Peter denied knowing Jesus. Epic fail. John is given the task of caring for Jesus' very mother. Epic success. John chapter 20 Peter and John hear that the tomb of Christ is empty. And so, do they walk arm in arm in solidarity to the tomb of Christ? No. John says, see, I wouldn't want to be it, and runs away and leaves Peter in the dust. Peter comes huffing and puffing later. I would imagine in the uninspired part of the text saying, thanks for waiting for me. John believed immediately when he saw the empty tomb. We don't have a record of what Peter did in his heart at that moment. And here in John 21, Peter is rebuked by Jesus in front of his friends while John seems to receive some sort of special assignment, which we now know is to write the end of the Bible. And I'll bet things weren't too hot between Peter and John when John and his brother James secretly went to Jesus and said, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can you skip over Peter, who is currently your number one guy, and can you make us number one and number two? Thanks, John. Appreciate that. No, they didn't always get along. But when John was exiled on the island of Patmos, 30 years after his friend Peter had been crucified, I'll bet John would have given anything for one more conversation with him. I'll bet John would have given anything to have Peter there with him in his time of isolation to pray with him. I'll bet John would have given anything to share their memories again. Remember that time that Jesus told us to cast our net on the other side of the boat and we caught so many fish we couldn't get it in and you as usual jumped over the side? You remember those times? I'll bet John would have given anything to share that moment again. Because at the end of the day they cherished each other and they loved one another. You are called to close relationships in the church. And I could say this in all love. You have one life to live. Don't waste it staying aloof. Don't waste it staying distant. Don't waste your life mad at everything and everyone. Don't waste your life upset about little details that don't matter. Don't waste your life gossiping behind closed doors. Let it be said that what you say in your heart to yourself, much less to others, are words of love and kindness and seeing the best and being thankful for the salvation of your fellow church members. Oh, yes, I know we're going to get on each other's nerves. I understand that. I get on your nerves. You get on my nerves. Isn't it great? We're going to spend eternity together. You have two choices. Get along now or get along later. I don't want to go to heaven and have the first thing happen is the Lord Jesus take your head and mine and knock them together. All right. Now we got that fixed. Don't waste your life looking down on everyone, being critical all the time, being sour. Don't waste your life never being truly vulnerable to other believers. Don't waste your life thinking that the only people you can like are the ones that are exactly like you. Put it this way, don't waste your life being a judgmental observer from the outside. Jump in. Jump in. Listen, these two men, Peter and John, these are great theologians. These are men, yes, they were fishermen. Don't think that that means they were uneducated. That's a myth. They were very well-educated men. Just because they were fishermen didn't mean they didn't have an education. 
They were great theologians, but listen to what they end with. Peter, who gives us as a great theologian some of the greatest theology on holiness and sanctification in all the Bible, he says gently in 1 Peter 4, 8, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of what? Sins. John, this great theologian who gives us the greatest tests of genuineness of salvation in all the New Testament, says kindly over and over and over and over again as he does in 1 John 4, 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The same John brought into church meetings saying, Little children, love one another. You remember it? God's purpose for you is to Live your life in the church. How? In humble sacrifice, in obedient submission, and in close relationship. I just have a moment, but I want to ask you to turn with me to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, same text that we read earlier. Romans 12 has something to say about how you live your life in the church. As a matter of fact, there's a progression that we see here, and we could divide the progression into three parts. The first part of the progression of how to live your life in the church we'll call in humble sacrifice. In humble sacrifice. I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And how are you to do this as a living sacrifice? Verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, do not, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to live, to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. It doesn't mean that some of you have different levels of faith. It means that if you have faith in Christ, you are humble. That's what it is. Verses 1 and 2, sacrifice. Verse 3, humility, humble, sacrifice. But then there's a logical connecting conjunction in verse 4. For, or because, and this gets us to the second part of the progression of how to live your life in the church, in obedient submission. Verse 4, for because as in, many, as in one body we have many members and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And then we get this glorious list of our spiritual gifts and talents, the different plan that God has for, for us. He's even made you differently. Let us use them for the benefit of the church. And then the third part of the progression on how to live your life in the church, you live it in close relationship. In close relationship. What's the result of humble sacrifice and obedient submission? Verse 9, let love be genuine. The Greek word for genuine, it means genuine. It's easy. It means real. It means authentic. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And then in the rest of chapter 12, the very text we base our membership covenant at Grace Bible Church upon, we get the glorious details of what it means to be in close relationship. 
It means rejoicing in hope, being patient, being generous, blessing those who speak ill of us, rejoicing together and weeping together, living in harmony, associating with the lowly, having a dim view of your own wisdom, never being vengeful. Translation, don't be passive aggressive. Serving those who treat us like enemies, overcoming evil with good. Listen, I've heard sermons from Romans chapter 12 on how to deal with the wickedness of the world. That's not what Romans 12 is about. Romans 12 is how to deal with the wickedness in the church. Starting with who? With you and with me. And what's the result then? If you live your life in the church in humble sacrifice and obedient submission and close relationship, what's happening? What is happening is that now you are organically and naturally living out the Great Commission. Did you know that? You're living out, you're making happen when Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, to observe all that I have commanded you. This is not given to individuals. The Great Commission is not just for you or just for you or just for you. The Great Commission was given first to the church because it's bathed in ecclesiology This is proclaiming the gospel, teaching the believers, the church to obey after what? After having baptized them into the body of Christ. And so, if you live your life in the church in humble sacrifice, obedient submission, close relationship, do that for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of your own joy, now you can love the church because it's giving you your purpose in life. It is your purpose in life. God's purpose for you is to live your life in the church. Let's pray. Our Father, it is with gratitude and thankfulness that we see how clear you have made this text. It is very clear to us. It is very clear as we compare it to the New Testament churches in Acts, as we compare it to the epistles, as we compare it to Revelation 2 and 3, the very words of Jesus Christ to the churches in Asia Minor. It's very clear that we are not to make the church a component of our lives. The church is to be the central hub and focus of our life. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us to live up to that standard, to throw our lot in with the church, to love one another, to serve alongside one another, to yearn for the gospel to be proclaimed through every local body. We love you and we thank you for this time in your word. I pray, Lord, that the truths that have been heard would sink deeply into the hearts of all who have listened such that they might never be the same and yet be more and more like Christ. We pray these things for his sake, for his honor, and in his name. Amen.